sometimes you need to hit the pause button as a clinician um, and a researcher and say, hang on, this is what my underlying assumption is. We want to be evidence-based practitioners, but in fact, this is just how we should practice. Ethics is every part of every clinical decision that we make. And what it is that we do is we make lives better. Welcome to Speak Up, the Speech Pathology Australia podcast. This podcast series highlights conversations with esteemed contributors in the speech pathology space. We explore key issues in the profession in a short and easy to listen to format. Let's hear what this week's contributors have to say. I'm talking today to Ron, Dr. Ronell Hewitson, who has undertaken research looking at social participation in people following right hemisphere strokes. Um, some of that research has been supported by a Queensland Registration Board Legacy Fund research grant from Speech Pathology Australia. So we're particularly delighted to talk to Ronelle today. Thank you, Corey. Thank you for inviting me to introduce this topic. So could you tell us a little bit perhaps about the background to your research? What interested you in the research? No problem at all. I think my interest in the research, so looking specifically at people who have had a right hemisphere stroke, really um, came about because of uh, clinical experiences, uh, working with people with right hemisphere stroke, where I um, felt that as a profession, we really just didn't have the body of evidence to support a lot of our decisions around assessment options or intervention options um, compared to, for example, the evidence that we have for working with people with aphasia. And um, initially, I was quite interested in maybe looking at, you know, research that considered a particular intervention approach. But then I, I quickly realized in, in speaking to colleagues and other speech pathologists that they would often mention things such as, you know what, I really don't have a lot of people with right hemisphere stroke in my caseload or their communication changes are relatively mild. Um, and I'm not sure really that they require um, a longer period of speech pathology than maybe what we're offering at the moment. So I think that's where my interest in looking at what are the long-term outcomes for, for this group of um, people are. Um, and trying to get a sense of, is it true that where communication changes are relatively mild, that social participation isn't affected? So really, interest came out of a, a clinical frustration with a, a lack of um, evidence in the area. It's great to see research that's coming out of clinical experience and some interesting questions to look at. I guess we know how important social participation is for us all. So I'm really interested to hear a bit more about what you found. Absolutely. As a profession, I think we, we understand that when communication changes as what might happen after a stroke, that this could have a negative impact on our ability to return to those valued roles and relationships. And we certainly have uh, excellent evidence looking at people with aphasia and the impact on their social participation uh, with reports of smaller social networks, uh, a lot 
loss of contact with friends. Um, but what we really don't have for people with the right hemisphere stroke is, is a lot of information that tells us what are the long-term outcomes in terms of their social participation. And it's interesting because what, um, what I considered was we looking at these two different populations and people with aphasia, we understand that communication might be significantly um, different after a stroke. Whereas we know that after right hemisphere stroke, those kind of building blocks of language should remain intact. Um, and the question then was, uh, would they also struggle with returning to relationships or social roles if they, their language building blocks are still intact? Um, and certainly in the research that I conducted, we found that yes, they do report long-term challenges with maintaining um, friendships, uh, with marital relationships, with a, a kind of a, a social network that reduces in the frequency of contact with others. Um, and we, we found this evidence by conducting interviews with both people with right hemisphere stroke and significant others. Um, so for the most part, that ended up being a spouse um, of the person with right hemisphere stroke. And um, we conducted these interviews using something called the Sydney Psychosocial Reintegration Scale that has specific items that looks at interpersonal relationship change. And we found that, you know, people after they have a right hemisphere stroke and their significant others almost universally were reporting changes in social participation. But then when we compared a group where communication remained intact with a group who were diagnosed with a cognitive communication disorder, we found that um, there was a much greater likelihood of changes occurring and that those changes were considered much more severe than when communication remained intact. So this really showed us that there was something unique about a cognitive communication disorder, that it wasn't just having a right hemisphere stroke um, and all of those possible cognitive or physical changes that occurred because of that, but that there was something unique in the communication in this population that we should look at further. And were you able to identify the factors underlying these changes? After this initial study where we interviewed 36 people with, with right hemisphere stroke and their participants, we then recruited a smaller group. Um, and with that smaller group, we conducted in-depth interviews and, and we engaged in um, social network analyses with the communication partner and the person with stroke to get a better sense of what are some of those risk factors that we should be aware of as speech pathologists. And it was very uh, apparent that I, I should just clarify that this population presents with quite a diverse um, range of impairments across prosody, lexical semantics, pragmatics, and discourse. And then up and above that, they present with a diverse range of changes in cognition. So whether it's executive function or memory or, or attention 
or social cognition. That basically means that somebody has difficulty interpreting intentions um, or understanding people's behavior and emotions based on prosodic features in their speech or based on facial expressions. So it's what, what we call theory of mind. And we recruited this group of people because of evidence in um, looking at people with traumatic brain injury. So in looking at uh, that population, we see that there is negative consequences in social participation when a social cognition impairment is present. So for our small group that we recruited with the right hemisphere stroke, we wanted to see whether this holds true for them as well. And we found that. And, and the things that were being flagged most often was um, directly related to social cognition. So a spouse might say something such as, he just can't seem to see, uh, you know, the intricacies of a conversation. He misses a lot of the detail. He misinterprets people's intentions um, or thoughts or beliefs. Um, so that kind of social cognition aspect was coming through quite um, strongly in, in the interviews, but then also just changes in communication in general. Um, and one of the things that was quite noticeable was that people really struggle with communication in group contexts. And that relates to uh, not only when a conversation is fast moving, but also when there is a lot of auditory input to process. Um, so there's definitely communication changes uh, that play a role. Um, and the other uh, big theme that came across which a lot of the listeners probably would know about if they've worked with people with the right hemisphere stroke was that um, there was for some of the, the participants a, a lack of um, awareness of change or a lack of awareness of the impact of their communication changes on relationships. Um, and it was interesting because they would have really good awareness about physical changes that's happened. Mm -hmm. um, I no longer can drive or I couldn't return to work. Uh, activities were too difficult for me or I've got weakness in one part of my body or I struggle with swallowing. And um, it's, it's interesting because when we look at evidence in traumatic brain injury, we see that awareness is, is not a concept that's either present or absent that awareness could be an issue for um, things that are not as concrete and visible. And I think we saw that in our interviews as well, where the, the participants lacked awareness of how their communication was different, but they could convey changes that was present in terms of those more physical or visible um, aspects related to the stroke. So what that meant for them and for their families was that they um, weren't aware that people were drifting out of their social networks. And the spouses, you know, would say that, you know, they just couldn't understand why this wasn't more of an issue for the person with the right hemisphere stroke. For some people, because we actually conducted these interviews between six and 12 months post-stroke, and for some of them, it seemed that there was an, a change in awareness. So it could also be um, that people are most vulnerable to losing their relationships in that early six months post-stroke. Um, but potentially with time, there might be a change in awareness. Um, and, you know, 
kind of tagging onto that really is that need for really good education with our clients with right hemisphere stroke and their, their family members. Um, this was actually one of the risk factors that a lot of the spouses mentioned. They said, we just didn't understand what was going on. We didn't have enough information about communication. Um, and then just one more like positive predictive factor in terms of maintaining relationships. And that was the role of the spouse. Uh, so they significantly um, improved the likelihood that people would remain socially engaged. So, you know, for some of our um, our couples, the, the take-home message was that, yes, the social network hasn't reduced too much in terms of frequency of contact with people in that network, but it is because of the hard work that the spouse is putting in behind um, the scenes to maintain those relationships. So I think that, again, is a really important take-home message for us as speech pathologists in terms of planning what we, we should be doing in this space. Which brings us very nicely onto the whole question of how, as speech pathologists, we can support these people Absolutely. So certainly in terms of education, I think there's value in really considering what information we're providing about cognitive communication disorder post right hemisphere stroke. Um, I think, uh, and even looking back at prior literature in this area, there's a tendency of family members to say that actually communication changes were only mild. Um, but when you have a, an interview with somebody and, and you unpack what their understanding is of communication, then it becomes evident that they potentially have a relatively narrow understanding of communication as relating to speech and language, um, whereas quite often those might be intact in this, this population. And it's rather that ability to understand communication that happens within a particular context um, or understanding the nonverbal messages that's conveyed. And that wouldn't be on the forefront of a family member's mind when we say to them, has communication changed? So really as speech pathologists, it's, I think the messages that we convey when we um, provide education needs to be modified for this group. Uh, I also think there's a lot of value in education that happens after discharge from acute care or from a hospital setting because awareness improves or changes. And I think that this group in particular, therefore, need to experience challenges um, or they need to experience what, what the impact of communication changes are when they try to return to valued roles and relationships. And at that point, it might be easier for them to have a more visible um, example of how communication is different. Another, I think, really important take-home message is, and tagging on from a key theme, that being the value of, of a spouse or a, a significant other, is that we, we really um, should consider how we can include them in our therapy. And I think... There was a um, podcast that I listened to a little while ago, and I think it was Aura Kagan that spoke about the life participation approach to aphasia. And she uh, made the comment of we need to start 
our, our intervention with participation as our ultimate goal. And I think when we do that, then it prompts us to rethink how are we assessing um, people? Are we including questions around who are the valued people in your life? Um, how do you communicate with them? Um, and, and who are the people who we need to include in therapy? There's also great value, I think, in considering uh, family-centered uh, intervention or relationship-focused therapy, and also project-based therapy. So Nicholas Byrne uh, published a, a study recently, which was really good, that looked at um, project-based interventions. And the idea there is to bring together a group of people who have had a neurological event, um, and it's around a shared project um, as the goal. And their outcomes really reinforce the notion of we can improve social engagement and social participation around a shared interest, while at the same time helping people to develop more awareness and understanding of their communication changes through changing how we provide therapy. So I think you know it is an area of our practice where there's emerging evidence that uh, in terms of the impairment focus interventions, but there's not that much evidence yet that looks at how do we improve social participation and engagement. And we're still drawing quite heavily on what's available when we look at cognitive communication disorders after traumatic brain injury, which, which is appropriate, but it also really um, should encourage us as a profession to say how can we add to the body of literature for the right hemisphere stroke population as well. Yes, indeed. Important um, way forward for building the evidence base for our profession. So just before we wrap up, I'm sure that you are carrying out further research in this area. Would you like to give us just a little tiny look into what's coming? Absolutely. So there, there is a publication that's just about um, to be submitted that is um, looking specifically at how social networks change in, in um, this group and another publication in the wings that's looking at some of those early predictors of social participation. So what data do we have that we collected during the acute phase of stroke admission that might be routinely administered um, screeners or routinely administered cognitive assessments that might give us an indication of who are most at risk of social participation changes. Um, and we're also looking at, um, you know, further work looking at can we better understand the profiles of cognition and communication changes in this group. And then there's another study that's considering education. So, uh, you know, engaging with people who have had a right hemisphere stroke and their significant others to get a sense of what is the information that would have helped them most and when and how should that be provided. So there's a bit of work, work happening. And in such an interesting area, and given the ageing of our population, I'm sure it's going to become even more important. Absolutely. Thank you so much for your time today, Ronelle. No problem, Corey. Thank you for having me. We hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Remember to subscribe to the podcast and share it with your colleagues. Thank you for listening and bye for now.